It may seem a little bit strange, given the uh, unsettling times in which we are living right now, but today on The Morning Show, we're going to be talking about happiness, of all things. And I'm very excited that uh, in this conversation, I can reconnect with Ginny Sassaman, who has been on The Morning Show before, and uh, she was here uh, in person in our studios some time ago to talk about... Uh, Gross National Happiness USA, a project that she has helped to oversee, and she has spoken extensively uh, on the topic of of happiness and positive psychology. And uh, it's important to say that it is a very sturdy kind of happiness that she uh, yeah. she espouses, and uh, and it's a kind of happiness that uh, is actually very very relevant uh, even in the times that we are living through right now. That uh, would seem on the surface to not be happy whatsoever. But in fact, there is happiness to be found, happiness and well-being. And in some respects, what we are experiencing right now is probably helping us uh, learn new lessons about uh, what real happiness is, what matters most in life, and so on. Ginny Sassaman has written a new book, which is called Preaching Happiness, Creating a Just and Joyful World. It's published by Rootstock Publishing. And uh, we're going to talk about what prompted her to put this book together, which actually is a ser- series of sermons uh, that yeah. she has presented uh, on this important topic. And uh, Ginny Sassaman is speaking to us uh, via telephone uh, from her home in uh, Vermont. Ginny Sassaman, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Greg, I'm really happy to be here, even if I can't be in the studio with you. Um, I know you've also had my daughter Jennifer on the air multiple times, and she's a theater professor at um, Parkside, and that's how you and I first connected, is uh, uh, us having um, Wisconsin connections and coming out there. Um, so, And I am also excited because you are the first interviewer I'm talking with about the book, and uh, I think you do a great job, so I am happy to start with you. Very good. I am, I'm excited as well. We should maybe mention that uh, our original plans, although I don't know that we had gotten anything very specifically scheduled, but the intention was for you to come to the studio because uh, it was uh, our visit about the book was going to happen while you were uh, here visiting in southeastern Wisconsin. And then, as the COVID-19 crisis really sort of swelled in seriousness uh, in severity, uh, you made the decision that you needed to return home to Vermont. And so uh, that's why this conversation needs to be uh, over the phone. Um, although uh, we'll, we'll mostly talk about the book, I think it's uh, appropriate for us to begin, first of all, by, by talking about this current situation that, uh, of course, is so uh, unsettling and uh and it has shaken us from many of the pursuits and activities that uh, have have made us happy. And suddenly we find ourselves unable to uh, go to concerts or uh, go to a ball game or uh, go to church choir practice or, or uh, uh, go bowling or any, any number of other uh, activities with which we have filled our lives. Um, although we're still in the midst of it, uh, I suspect you have already been thinking a whole lot about how this current situation uh, is affecting all of us uh, and affecting our own happiness. What, what kinds of things have you been thinking about? 
Well, I've been thinking that um, this book is extremely timely, actually, because um, I I came into the happiness movement um, from a different door than a lot of other people. A lot of people uh, are really interested in the personal happiness movement and positive psychology, as I am as well. But my first interest was in changing the systems, the, the, you know, kind of the overarching systems that affect us all. And to me, the two must go hand in hand, that we, we need to understand uh, truly what makes us happy. And happiness, of course, is not just about pleasure. Uh, that's a component. But it's, um, it's about so much more, and it's so deep. So we need to understand our personal happiness, our personal well-being, and then we need to understand also our commitment to each other. And COVID-19 is certainly showing us that. We are interconnected. There's just no getting around it. And we. so we need to not only grow our own personal happiness, but we need to look at the structures which govern our lives and think about how to change those so that it supports maximum well-being for all of us, um, and including especially even nature and animals with whom we're also totally interconnected. Um, so... I mean, I'm 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 shook up too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, who wouldn't be? Uh, but I do see in this moment an opportunity for us all to dig a little bit deeper in our personal understanding, and um, also we can't help but see our interconnection. Um, so to really think about, wait a minute. Like, what what systems would have helped us avoid getting here? What systems would make it easier for us to um, rebound, uh, not just individually, but collectively? Mm. And, and just one more piece there. Uh, it's really um, uh, uh, amazing and beautiful, the whole purpose of all the self-quarantining and self-isolation and social distance. Yes, we ourselves want to keep ourselves healthy and our immediate um, loved ones who we may be interacting with daily, but it's also been sold to us. Even more importantly, it's about keeping other people healthy. Mm. It's about keeping um, our seniors and those with compromised Um, systems healthy and alive so this whole moment is very much not just about the individual but it's about the collective and that is really to me what happiness is all about very very well put and I think you're right there's all kinds of things that we uh, see with a new kind of clarity uh, because uh, so much around us has has changed and uh uh, I, I, right. yeah, on my Facebook feed this morning, uh, 
came up, uh, what 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 uh, what happens nearly every day when someone subscribes to Facebook is it will pull up a picture or a video that you posted either a year ago or a couple of years ago on that this right, very day, right? And uh, the one that popped up for me this morning was a brief little video I took of the bell choir at my church playing a really beautiful song. And uh, I shared that this morning with uh, the heading, uh, I will never take a scene like this for granted ever again. Uh, There you go. I mean, gratitude is, uh, I I mean, I think a lot of people know this already, but, but it is true. Gratitude is a, is a huge component um, of personal happiness, and again, when we when we practice that on a personal basis, we can see it extending out and radiating out to our communities. Here, here's one that I've been see, I've been seeing this on Facebook: uh, gratitude to grocery store workers that never before have I, I think, really appreciated the absolutely key role that um, a grocery store workers play in our well-being and how now, you know, they're on the front lines to keep us healthy. So, you know, big shout out to any of you <laughs> grocery store workers. Absolutely. <laughs> we're speaking with Ginny Sassaman and we're uh, talking about a book that has just been published called Preaching Happiness, Creating a Just and Joyful World. So you have been uh, exploring the principle of, of happiness for a while now, but in some respects, uh, some of your, your deepest uh, understandings of, of happiness have come relatively late in, in, in your life. In the, the preface to the book, uh, you, you say, uh, as for my own happiness, it didn't show up in a full-blown way until about my fifth career. <laughs> and this right. uh, this comes after you have described uh the the essentially your your professional background and some of the really interesting things that that you have done. Um maybe you should sketch that briefly for our listeners and then uh let's talk about the way in which it was by career number 5 that uh you came to uh a a, a deeper understanding and and experienced for yourself a deeper kind of happiness than before. Right. I, I, you know, that makes me think I should, I should preface this by saying, um, uh, even though the title is Preaching Happiness, and yes, it is sermons, some of my own friends sort of have the heebie-jeebies with that because they don't uh, ascribe to any particular religion or church. So um, uh, these were all sermons that were given in Unitarian Universalist settings, and for those who aren't familiar with that, you know, the UU world is one in which people can bring their own <laughs> their own belief system, really. So it, it, these are very secular sermons that it doesn't really matter what a person's individual um, religious belief is. This, this kind of includes everybody, every religion or lack thereof. Um, so it can speak to anybody, no, no matter your belief. Uh, yeah, so I, I do. I like to. I like to tell the story that maybe I was meant to be um, a happiness uh, preacher. 
um, that there is this family myth that when I was just like 18 months old, um, my mother heard me making noises in the crib and came in to see what the baby needed. And when she came in the room, I was rocking back and forth saying, happy, happy, happy. (laughs) So maybe it was my destiny, but it did take a long time to get there. And uh, I I have worked in Washington, D.C. for groups like Common Cause and the American University as their, basically their media person. Then I was a full-time watercolor painter um, uh, doing the arts and craft show thing. Then I went to graduate school to become a mediator. And then I started reading about happiness. And I had just a a major aha moment reading a book um, called The Geography of Bliss, um, which is by a former NPR correspondent, Eric Weiner. And I first read about the gross national happiness concept in that book, and it was an immediate, like, lightning strikes, life-transforming moment um, that I I just, that became my, my calling, and I do feel like sort of preaching the gospel of happiness is my calling in life. Um, so then it was a process of, of educating myself. What does gross national happiness mean? Um, learning about positive psychology, um, putting the two together. And meanwhile, my, my own church, um, which is the Unitarian that I attend, the Unitarian Church of Montpelier asked me one day to, if I wanted to be a guest preacher. And I very much did because kind of as your intro discussed, people can think of happiness as a very light subject. And to me, it's, it is anything but. You know, the more we genuinely build our own happiness, the, the better suited we are to serve the world. And so I thought it was really appropriate in a church setting. So that was back in 2013. And since then, I have visited um, many different churches, including Olympia Brown in uh, Racine. And then a couple of years ago, there was there's a in 2017, a church near me, which is in a Vermont summer area, and they only have church services in the summer, asked me to come do most of their services. So I have done most of their services in the summer for the last three years. And about halfway through that, as I was writing these pieces, I realized that it was a book. Mm. Um, and I also felt like there are a couple of things about this that make it different and maybe um, more accessible to kind of anybody. <laughs> and one is, <clears throat> you know, I learned from like an academic superstar. And, um, you know, there are some very sort of glittery happiness people out there. Well, that is not me. <laughs> I feel like I'm just a regular person. Right. And, and that if I can 
learn about these concepts which come from, you know, brain science and poetry and, and so many different fields, if I can learn about these concepts and bring them into my own life, so can just about anybody. So I feel like I'm reaching out as like one regular person to all the rest of you out there who also are just people going about your lives. Uh, so that's one thing that I think is, is a little bit different. And then there is the nature of sermons themselves. So I, I think often nobody wants to be preached at unless they are going to church and want to be preached at then. You know, when I'm standing in the pulpit and I look out at whoever is there in the congregation and see everybody's faces, you know, there's this um, awareness that everybody wants something. I don't know that anybody knows what it is, but, you know, they come to church wanting something to, you know, to take away um, some inspiration or a quote or something comforting or something motivating. So I think that, I hope that when people pick up the book, they're coming to it with that same kind of attitude, that they want something. And, and I want to offer that to people. One of the things I appreciate about the preface is that yeah, you really kind of help us understand how uh, your 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 life's journey has provided you with all kinds of, of building blocks for this uh, this very full understanding that you have about what it really means to be happiness uh, happy and and the way in which uh, true happiness uh, can really galvanize us uh, you know for our presence in the world. In that preface, one of the really intriguing stories that you you tell, without going into a whole lot of detail, but it's a very poignant little moment, is when you talk about a a time when you were a teenager and uh, you were uh, in an interracial relationship. So you you were dating a young man of of another race. And uh, and, uh, you experienced uh, resistance to that from... uh, several different people in your life. And uh, the way that story kind of ultimately ends, I think, uh, is really quite profound. I wonder if you would mind sharing that story with our listeners. No, I'm happy to share that story. I feel like it um, was was a, a, a key moment in, in shaping me. And, and and for some of your younger listeners, especially, I should say this happened quite a few years ago, um, and uh, I think a lot of attitudes have shifted since then. But at the time, I was in an overwhelmingly white um, junior high school, and in an overwhelmingly white um, and fairly conservative uh, part of Pennsylvania, and it was just not okay to um, have a relationship with someone from another race. But I was too naive to even know that. (laughs) And uh, I was just, when I got a call from this fellow, and, you know, he was was cute and a football player, and I just, you know, man, I wanted a boyfriend. (laughs) So, 
But what I found was so many people in the school, including teachers, like suddenly hated me. But the what happened that was so amazing, we traveled in um, sections or, or cohorts. And in my cohort, uh, I had... Um, I had two very close friends, and both their parents said they were not allowed to be my friend anymore, so they just cut me off. Um, but but the other people in my uh, cohort kind of, they galvanized around me. And at the time, uh, it was so welcome and so comforting um and it and it helped to teach me to be brave and to speak my truth um and to stand up for what i believe to be right it also ultimately helped teach me compassion not in the moment but reflecting back on it i felt so sad for my two friends because then the class turned against them so they were only doing what their parents told them to do, and that must have been very hard for them to be um, ostracized like that. Uh, so there was a lot of learning. That the the main learning was we need to speak our truth. Mm. Let's uh, probe a little uh, further into your book, and let's remind our listeners again that uh, the book is titled Preaching Happiness, Creating a Just and Joyful World. Uh, and this book is a uh, a series of, of of sermons actually that you delivered uh, on on the the topic of 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 happiness. We've actually already touched a little bit on uh, one of the main points of the very first chapter of the book, which is titled "Happiness for Everyone: Our Moral Obligation to Change the Economic Paradigm." And this actually touches on something which uh, you speak of in, in, in the preface, and you've already talked about how from a very early age you were someone who cared about justice and social justice. And you know, in a lot of respects, uh, this turns on its head uh, the, the more shallow notions that we might have about what happiness is or what it means to be happy. And I think for some people, they think the key to being happy is to kind of stick your head in the sand. I mean, stop reading the news, stop listening to sad stories about uh, other people and their and their miseries, uh, and 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 if you can sort of keep yourself encased in a in a safe bubble uh, and just care about yourself, that seems like a really good way to be happy. And uh, of course, you are talking about a, a a kind of happiness that is completely different from that which uh, acknowledges what needs to be changed in our world and, and is willing to uh, engage in trying to bring those changes about. I mean, that is a very different kind of happiness than the casual happiness that a lot of people like to talk about. Right, and I am, I have always been interested in um, justice, uh, social justice, uh, and I am also interested in joy. <laughs> and I, I mean, as far as I know, we only have one life to live. And I, <laughs> I want us to live it with as much 
laughter and music and art um, and love as possible. But I feel like in this country, um, we have way oversold the value of um, the individual perspective. You know, there is a value in in the the individualist, I can do this, I can take care of it. But again, as we're seeing with COVID-19, nobody can. <laughs> we're all by themselves. We're all connected. So I think we need to view all of this as one big mixture. Um, I, you know, I... And it can be done. It can be done. I mean, I, I talk in that chapter about uh, a different ways of, of framing how we define both personal success and overall um, society success. And we're so focused now, and I think we've all internalized this, that we define success so much based on money and material well-being and power, status, but if you look into your own life and you think, what are the many aspects within your own life that make you happy? Sure. Especially now, I do not want to disparage the need to feel economically secure and, uh, you know, to have the food and the health care you need to take care of your children, all of those things. But it's a much more complicated picture about what we as individuals need to be happy. And some of the things the book touches on that might not be as readily apparent are beauty. You know, if you, if you were to imagine a life without beauty, I mean, that is really stark. And, I mean, who wants to live that kind of life? Or a life without being creative through music or gardening or um, storytelling, whatever it is. We need creativity. We need relationships. We need, uh, we need conflict resolution skills. We need forgiveness. We need kindness. We need mindfulness. We need good health. We need good food. It's a whole it's a whole complex set of factors that we need for our own happiness. And yet, if you look at, again, like the national measures, it's, it's like, how is the GDP, the gross domestic product, doing? It's like, that's just a tiny piece. So we need to refocus what truly can support the pursuit of happiness for everyone and and I and I emphasize, you know, I think two of the the um, most poignant sermons for me were the one on our connection with nature, and also the one on our connection with animals, because right now we are well before COVID nineteen, we were really, really. Um, destroying our natural world, and yet we ourselves cannot survive, much less be happy, without a healthy natural world. And the same is true with animals, which are going extinct. Um, we need 
to protect our fellow sentient beings, not just out of the goodness of our heart, though that would be great, but also for our own happiness, our own well-being. Hmm. Um, so it's very much a collective. And there's one image that, to me, kind of a visual image that can uh, kind of put this into perspective. So may, many of your listeners may have seen after Hurricane Michael hit the Florida panhandle a couple of uh, Septembers ago. And they may remember um, the town of Mexico Beach was just flattened, mile after mile after mile of just flattened houses, the whole town. And there was one picture, one photograph of a house that was still standing that had been built more recently and built more strongly and did not get flattened. So there's this house standing. So, But what do you think the owners of that house felt like? And I saw the owner interviewed, and he was crying. He's like, what do I care, basically, that my own house is still standing? When all my friends and neighbors, their house, they're gone, and many of the people were killed. So we cannot focus on our own happiness alone. That's like that house standing by itself hmm. uh, after Hurricane Michael. Hmm. We need all of us. We're speaking with Ginny Sassaman, and we're talking about her book, Preaching Happiness, Creating a Just and Joyful World. In the second chapter of your book, Happiness Runs in a Circular Motion, you tell a very interesting story that helps us understand uh, what I think at one point in the chapter you describe as the interdependence of happiness and sadness. Uh, it's it's an, uh, an experience that you had uh, at one point in your life with a very serious eye problem, I mean, that, yes. that, that could have... Or, been perhaps far more serious than it turned out to be, but it was an unpleasant and and, and scary situation. And during this experience, you say, I unwittingly made the perfect happiness choice. So I I want you to tell our listeners about that, but first, a a little bit of background would be helpful, I think. Yes. So um, I I was having um, symptoms that didn't flashing is symptoms and uh, there's something called floaters, which a lot of people experience. Um, it's that part is is not uncommon. So I went to get my eyes checked and was sent immediately to a retinal specialist. And the retina specialist looked in my eye and was like, it's like everything in the room changed and. The, the long and short of it is I have a, a disease um, which is often caused by uh, diabetes or high blood pressure, but in my case it was just caused by um, being nearsighted and just really stretching um, stretching the capacity of, of my eye, something called retinal neovascularization, which means bleeding, hemorrhaging in the retina. So what the doctor, excuse me, what the doctor told me was 
that that disease, if left untreated, could cause blindness within a matter of months. It was just in my left eye, uh, so it would have been, if I had not gotten to the doctor, I could have gone blind in my left eye within months. And the treatment for that is it's something which sounds a lot scarier than it really is, but they inject uh, a drug into right into your eye. Uh, it's not as bad as it sounds, but it sure did sound horrible. <laughs> so it was shocking. It was traumatic. Um, I, I had read enough. I knew quite a bit about happiness by that point, and I knew that even Christopher Reeve, the actor who was uh, became a quadriplegic after a, a horse accident, uh, bounced back eventually and became happy. So I, I, I just I was walking around the house practicing with my hands over my eyes, like what would happen if I went blind? And w- the decision that I made that was so helpful was I so I have a blog, happinessparadigm.com, and I just wrote about this. I didn't want to see any of my friends. I wanted to be alone because I was scared. This was on, I, I, I had a couple of days before between the diagnosis and getting that needle in my eye. So I was scared and traumatized and um, just wanted to be with my husband. But I wrote about it, uh, and I had this amazing outpouring of love and support online, which is, you know, kind of a precursor to where we are right now, (laughs) that now we're all really reaching out to each other online. But that showed me the value of social media because so many people just stepped up and they offered to help me in any way they could and just, you know, wishing me best. And it just filled my heart with gratitude. And then there were many other things. It's back to gratitude again, but there were many other things that I had to be grateful for. You know, I had health insurance. So there's that systems piece. I mean, if I hadn't had health insurance, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, how much does a retinal specialist and, uh, you know, an, an, an eye saving drug. How much does that cost? Um, So I had health insurance. I had good medical care. I I had so many things to be grateful for. But I think another key piece of this story, so we all have our own version of that story, whether it's a health story or someone else's health, and especially going into we haven't hit the worst of COVID by a long shot. There will be pain and there will be suffering and there will be grieving. And I think it's really, really important to feel that. We need to feel the sad when we are sad. We need to feel the anger. We need to feel the fear. We need to feel bad. We just don't need to wallow in it. And for me, I had the permission to feel as bad as I needed to feel because I knew. I knew the happiness tools. I knew I could get back to that place. I knew what to do to feel better when it was time to feel better. Mm. And 
So I think that's an important message for everybody. There was so much in that. The, the systems piece, the gratitude piece, the reaching out to others and the relationship piece, but also, and perhaps this is the one that people don't know as well, is sadness is an important component of happiness. In fact, in Bhutan, the country where the gross national happiness concept originated, they and they try to practice it. They they focus on these skills as a as a country. I don't know if it's a requirement or it's a request, but they ask every person in the country to focus on death for about an hour every day with an awareness that by facing up to the sadness, facing up to the pain and the fear, and accepting it as a natural part of who we are, we are much, much better equipped to laugh. Hmm. In the third chapter of your book, which talks about growing our happiness muscles in order to build Uh, a better world, that is a nice image uh, and, again, points to a very robust uh, kind of, of, of happiness. You, you spell out a really interesting relationship between uh, activism and happiness and, uh, and go so far as to say that some of the happiest moments you've experienced in your life have been while you were doing work as an activist. I mean, maybe at a huge rally, I think you describe one in, in this chapter and, and other instances where you are doing good in the world as an activist and it just makes you happy. But but the relationship between activism and happiness is a little more complicated than that. And in some ways, you feel like it's important to sort of flip that equation on its head. Uh, explain to our listeners what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, and again, very, very timely information. And, uh, um, and I would say that what I'm talking about with activism applies to whatever it is that people do individually, all your listeners, again, the grocery workers, the medical staff, the moms and dads teaching their kids at home. But whatever it is that we uh, individually, where we find the meaning in our lives, that meaning gives us joy. That it's, yes, the meaning gives us joy. But when we practice our happiness skills, that gives us the strength and the joy to continue. And there are many different ways to do that. Um, I, uh, I, for example, am, uh, work with a local group of activists, and, and we put a huge emphasis on relationships and feeling. Like, how is everybody doing today? And it's that social bonding, it's that social capital that enables us to do our, our best activism. Um, there are other ways to do this as well. Uh, one of the, the, the book I also want to say. Um, cites many, many different um, researchers who have done great work in the field, and and there are uh, there's endnotes to connect everybody to those people's work to f- delve in a little bit deeper. But one of them is a woman named Barbara Fredrickson, who is from um, the University of North Carolina, and she came up with this concept of broaden and build. 
which is to say when we're um, depressed, when we're angry, when we're uh, just shut down in one way or another, we, we're not at our best in whatever it is we do. Um, and I, I compare that to like cold water. When, when we're in cold water or cold, the cold Wisconsin wind, we kind of shrink into ourselves. Mm. When we open up to positivity, when we look for the good, when we build our happiness muscles, we also are more creative in our problem solving. We're more resilient. Our relationships are stronger. So building the positive within ourselves is really valuable in, in creating uh, a better world for, for everybody else. Um, another, another strategy that is in that same chapter that uh, I, I think is really helpful and, and, and available to everyone so some of the earliest positive psychologists came up with a theory that it's really best for us to know our personal strengths, uh, our, our individual virtues, and what matters, what, what each of us is truly in our core uh, best at. And they, they came up with a list of 24 universal virtues and strengths that each of us has, but also each of us has a couple of those that is really our very, very best selves. So these folks have an online um, little quiz that you can sit down and take this survey, and it will tell everybody listening, it will tell you what your core strengths are. Um, And you can find it just Google VIA Virtues in Action Institute, and you can find this this little survey. And then, when you know what you are really best at, you can take those strengths out into your your activism or whatever work gives you meaning, and come from come from that place, hmm. uh, rather than trying to be you know a, a person. You're not. So for me, some of the strengths for me are um, the capacity to give and receive love. So I take that out into the world. Like, how can I use that in this time, Uh, any time? There's always suffering. There's always crisis. But how can I use that? Um, But it will be different for each of us. For some people, it will be creativity. Some people, it's beauty. Um, it, one of my friends is, uh, he is just a real learner and love of learning is one of these strengths. And so he has been learning, learning, learning everything he can about COVID and then sharing that with the rest of us. So we have a better understanding. So yes, using your strengths and just generally recognizing that happiness and positivity is not selfish it is for the greater good hmm. i mean you can use it in a selfish way <laughs> but i would urge everybody to, to 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 understand that it is a tool 
to be to be a creator of a of a better world. Hmm. I want to make sure that people understand uh, that uh, uh, that your your uh, your book goes into other directions as well. Uh, there's a chapter called "All You Need Is Love," but it's complicated in which you talk about uh, the significant role of relationships uh, in love and what you call micro moments of love that we can have with others, even with people that we don't necessarily uh, know very well. Uh, yeah. There's a chapter on on uh, mindfulness and compassion in which you explore uh, what mindfulness is and what a uh, significant player it can be in our own uh, well-being. Uh, I really love the chapter uh, uh, six in which you talk about social comparison. You tell a oh really gosh, great story, yeah. yes, about how... So often we fall prey to comparing ourselves to others. You tell a, an amazing story of being a, a, an artistic exhibitor at a gala at which fancy treats are being uh, given, and that's only for the wealthy patrons of this event, <laughs> not for you exhibitors, and you are looking at that and resenting that, and, but, but, but it ultimately ends with a wonderful story about realizing, but I'm happy, and I need to... Stop comparing myself to people with more money or people with more this or that. It's that whole chapter is just replete with great, uh, great insights. And uh, also, there is a chapter uh, in your book which talks about conflict and how often the road to happiness uh, includes some conflicts uh, along the way. And in that chapter, you touch upon your your work as a, a a mediator. I think it's back in the preface that you actually say over the course of your your life and your many careers. You have encountered lesson upon lesson over the years, lesson upon lesson about what it means to be happy. And uh, your book is just packed from front to back uh, with so many of those lessons that you uh, explore in in really uh, lovely fashion. And I want to also add that your book is full of footnotes. So in other words, this is a book that's very carefully and seriously crafted and uh, uh, and and I appreciate that that great care as well. The book is preaching happiness, creating a just and joyful world. Uh, a great book to be reading, uh, even at this moment in time that we find ourselves. The book is published by Rootstock Publishing. It can be ordered at rootstockpublishing.com/books. And uh, Ginny Sassaman. Uh, in the midst of what in some respects is a very unhappy and, and, and scary time for all of us, I really appreciate that your your book is entering the world and uh, and can be enjoyed by all of us. And uh, I really appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show for this conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it as well.